I'm a Christian. I've gone to church since I was a baby. I'm a real good person. And I believe in God. Isn't this what Jesus meant? Or is there something more that I need to know? Good morning and welcome to God's Resistance. A very good morning to you in this Lord's Day. My name is Eric Samborski, and I want to thank you for tuning in to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. And you can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. We are local. We're in the Wyoming Valley in the Wilkes-Barre area, and we're looking to start small groups to talk about spiritual matters and look at the Bible together. We're trying to plant churches throughout the Wyoming Valley here. We are trying to be disciples ourselves. We want to walk after Jesus and obey him, and we're trying to make disciples of Christ so that others will walk after Christ and Jesus can extend his kingdom in this valley. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance, that is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like and follow us for video content, for teaching and preaching. You can find us on YouTube as well. Be sure to subscribe and turn on the bell to be notified of any new videos. Please also look for God's Resistance podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also visit us at www.godsresistance.com. And if you'd like to have a Bible study, you want to pray with somebody, you want to talk with somebody, then please contact us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or give us a call at 570-362-7782. Now let's listen in on today's briefing. We are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We started that last week, and we're just moving on to another section here where Jesus was talking about salt and light. And he, we, we said before that the crowds that came around Jesus, they were people that were from uh, Decapolis and the areas roundabout. They were largely inhabited by Greek people. But he also said that his disciples came up to him and sat down in front of him a little ways up the mount. So he was speaking to his disciples at times, especially here in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but there were others that were down lower that could hear him as he was teaching his disciples. So that's important for us to realize as we're listening to this, as we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. I was, I'm just going to jump right in here. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What a statement. So he said, you are the salt of the earth. You? Who's Jesus talking about? Well, as I had mentioned before, I think immediately from this context and from the verse that we can read and everything surrounding it, this is addressed to his disciples, the people that followed him closely. But everyone that was there could hear him and could hear what he said to his disciples. So even if there was thoughts in people's minds that maybe I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they also would hear this truth. He said, you 
disciples of Jesus Christ. You're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. That's maybe not the uh, kind of expression that we would hear much at all in American culture. So we need to dive into that a little bit. Salt in the Bible was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. I mean, they had salt covenants. I know for my wife and I, when we got married, instead of having wedding rings, what we did was we each had a pouch full of salt and we opened the bags of the salt. We said our vows one to another and then to seal those vows, we took a pinch of salt from each of our bags and then we dropped them into each other's bags, closed the bags up and shook them. Symbolically, there is no way we could have taken any and all of those grains of salt out of there and then back up on our marriage covenant. And so we find that same kind of a covenant happening in the Old Testament. But salt was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. That is Leviticus 2.13. This was prescribed, the salt, because it added flavor. And there's definitely symbolic meanings behind it, but he, they added flavor to the offerings because the offerings were to be eaten after, depending on which ones they were. And then we look in Job 6.6, 6, and this validates this. Job 6.6 6 says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of a mallow? Another version says, is there any taste in the white of an egg? So we realize salt gives flavor or brings out the natural flavor of whatever it is that you are eating. That's something for us to understand. This, this covenant that God would have made with Israel was an eternal covenant. In 2 Chronicles 13.5, we read, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? And you'd say, wait a minute, King David's long dead. Yes. However, when we look at prophecy, when it says that King David's throne would continue forever and ever and be given unto his sons, Jesus Christ came from the line of David. David's ancestry line led to Christ himself. So that is a prophetic fulfillment, and God is still upholding his covenant because Jesus is now seated on the throne on high, and he is never to be dethroned. So he is from David's line, and that's a perpetual covenant and a salt covenant by God. So again, let's think about this. There's this covenant of salt that we read about inside of the scriptures, something very important an eternal covenant. We see that as it's spoken about in scriptures, but more particularly in what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples right now uh, in this section that we're looking at, salt is a preservative. It stops things from putrefying and rotting. It keeps things. You can uh, look in history in the pioneer days of America and really not too long ago, people would salt their meats so their meats wouldn't spoil. They would salt it so that it would be kept. It's a preservative. It's also a flavor enhancer, as we mentioned before. Who, who of us would like to eat the white of an egg bland? I'm sure that there's some people out there that maybe for health reasons or maybe they just really are bland people. Uh, they wouldn't want salt. But most people, you would say, man, this needs something. It's, it's kind of bland. And we would think about that with so many things. You don't, you'd be surprised uh, how much salt 
is in even sweet items that we eat because it brings flavors out. It pulls things together. It's a flavor enhancer, but it's also a purifying agent. You can do salt water rinses uh, for your nasal passages. You can do salt water baths for wounds. Um, it, salt can kill certain uh, amoebas or organisms that are within water or within meats or whatever. They would use salt to clean. It's a purifying agent. Also, we can think about salt being um, there to melt ice in winter seasons. And so they put salt down and it melts ice. All these different uses of salt. Salt's fairly useful. I think we can all agree on that. The Jews specifically, however, and this is interesting because of the phrase that Jesus used, the Jews referred to God's law as the salt of the earth. So Jesus takes this concept. They're saying the law is the salt of the earth. Jesus takes this even closer by saying the law is not the salt of the earth, but my disciples are the salt of the earth. In that what the, uh, us as disciples, as Christian people, we're to be adding this saltiness to the earth so far as God's gospel is concerned and truth is concerned and revelation. We're the salt of the earth, not just a written law. So if we were to take what I was just talking about salt just a moment ago and then now start to apply that to Christian people, to the disciples of Jesus Christ, then we realize what's being said is that we are the preservers of righteousness. So we preserve righteousness in ourselves by being saved, by walking with Christ. We preserve righteousness in ourselves. We preserve righteousness in our homes. We preserve righteousness in our churches. And we preserve righteousness in society and in our culture. Think about that. Well, who else is going to preserve righteousness? There's that common morality that, you know, just because all of us are made in the image of God, that we have the sense of right or wrong. But only the true Christians, the disciples of Christ, have the power to live like Christ lived. And so show what righteousness looks like. Show God's divine revelation. So disciples, they are the preservers of righteousness everywhere. If anyone wants to know what righteousness is, Jesus is saying, look at my disciples. That's both a wonderful privilege and also a sobering thought. Because how are you living? Are you showing the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ in the way that you live? Or are you shaming Christ in his name in the gospel? We are also the flavor enhancers of this world. We give the unique savor of God in a sin-cursed world. It's easy to find sin. You don't have to try very hard. You can find all sorts of filth everywhere you go. But it is few and far between when we find a truly noble and upright person in the midst of a sin-cursed world. And so we add flavor to this world, to the sin-cursed world. And then we add flavor to the blandness and drabness of sin that would swallow all existence, all existence if it weren't for the salt of those disciples of Christ. In other words, people know what sin is. They see it everywhere. And so we add this different element to life that helps people to see there's different. There's something different here. They're, and obviously, most of the time when that happens, they, they, they're struck in such a way, what's going on with this person? Why are they so different? And they start asking questions. And if they follow the trail long enough, they'll find that it leads right to God. And so we're the flavor enhancers, the disciples of Christ, the flavor enhancers of this present existence 
in the in the world that we're living in. And we're the purifying agents. The very lives and actions of the disciples of Christ can literally turn nations into pure and holy nations. And you think, wow, that sounds like a tall order. I'm not sure, buddy. This sounds like, you know, if that's the case, then why are we in such a bad situation? Well, there's other answers that we could get into with that, but I'm just telling you, as far as the scriptures are concerned, and as far as revelation is concerned from God to men or to humankind, it is supposed to be this way. We can look in history. This is just one example, but the Salvation Army during the life of General Booth, they went into countries all throughout the world, and it wasn't just this small little thing. It exploded. They stopped child prostitution. They stopped regular prostitution. They stopped crimes of all sorts. They stopped drunkenness. They healed broken homes. They stopped marital unfaithfulness. They stopped stopped dishonest business gains. They stopped to help and alleviate the sicknesses of many throughout the world. And they alleviated the poverty of many. They literally can cleanse sin out of a nation. So the Salvation Army did that, but the disciples of Christ, we can literally cleanse sin out of a nation. This is Christ's intent for disciples, for those that follow him. But then he asked the question, but if the salt has lost its taste, what would you do with a shaker of salt that wasn't salty? Think about it as you sit down to eat your dinner. Maybe you have company coming over your house and someone says, can you please pass the salt? They dump salt in their food, they take a bite, and then they think, I guess I didn't put enough salt on, so they keep dumping it on. Visibly, they could see that salt is all over the top of their food, but as they take a bite, There's no saltiness. What would you do with a shaker of salt that was like that? Let me ask another question. What can God do with a so-called disciple of his that's not salty like we've already just described? So here's the next question. How can a disciple lose its taste or saltiness? First, we must realize that it's possible. There is so-called Christian teaching in this present day that says it is not possible to backslide or to forfeit your salvation. But there are many biblical examples, too numerous to cover at this time, but I do want to bring out some. Revelation 2.4 says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So how can we lose our saltiness as the disciple of Christ? abandoning the first love you had when you were born again, when you were saved, when you were converted, when the light of God came in your soul, you abandoned. It's not like it just imperceptibly leaks out and we wonder what happened. We've somehow turned away from Jesus and we've abandoned that love that we first had. You don't pray as much as you used to, nor do you pray with the same desire and fervency. You don't relish the Bible much anymore. You kind of maybe left off reading the Bible daily and applying it to your life. You've grown lazy in loving obedience. You don't obey Christ like you used to when you first came to him. We find another place in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. What can we learn from this verse? You start to love the things of the world instead of rejecting the things of the world. That will help for you to lose that saltiness, that savor of Christ in your life. Another place in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, Paul says, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. So in this verse, we can realize that you can lose your faith. There is no active belief in God according to his word, and the result is that you leave off obeying him when you don't believe him fully, and you have not obeyed your conscience. Perhaps your conscience is telling you the road that you're traveling is the wrong way, but over the course of time, we've just kind of not listened, done whatever we please, and now our conscience has become seared. In case you've just tuned in, you are listening to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the world, and the devil. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. You can also email us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. Again, what do we do with salt that has lost its saltiness? Let's ask another question. What does God do with a Christian that's abandoned their first love and does not have the salt of divine life flowing through them anymore? Jesus said this kind of salt is just as valuable as the dirt that we walk on. And that's a fairly different picture than most so-called Christian preachers and teachers would like us to think. It's just feel good and just accept Jesus and then keep going. But the Bible does give us a much more in-depth picture and a much more serious picture than that. We enter the spiritual life by repentance and faith in Christ, and then he gives us a new heart. But we maintain that life by intentional spiritual efforts. And the same goes in natural life. We enter into the world by one crisis moment of birth. And in order to maintain that life, we must obey the laws of health and nutrition. Otherwise, the life will be prematurely extinguished. Why is it hard to believe that that isn't so in the spiritual life? I think sometimes it's because we've sold ourselves to some doctrinal framework that we refuse to see what's simply in front of us in the scriptures. Well, we move on here to verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So you disciples, but everyone's hearing. Remember, that's the context. You're the light of the world. You're not just one of the lights in the world. Notice that it says you are the light of the world. So the disciples of Christ are the singular light of the world. There is no other contest in the sight and heart of God. The disciples of Christ are the one and exclusive only light of the world. And light implies revelation and understanding from heaven down to us. It implies the light of knowledge of God and righteousness. And he says, disciples, you are the light to what? To the world. We read in 1 John 5, 19, that the world lies in darkness. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, says the songwriter, is lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said he was the light of the world in one place in the Gospel of John, and he also said that his disciples are the light of the world. Here's another sobering thought for us. Jesus teaches that we are to be like him. 
He said a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So think about it. Mountains stick out from the rest of the terrain. I used to live in Arizona in Phoenix and most of it's flat. And then you would see these mountains stick out. Now they aren't mountains like we have here in the Northeast, but they were mountains made of uh, dirt, basically. These mountains, they stick out. And because everything was so flat, you could see them from very far away. Visibility was pretty good. Then uh, I lived in the Adirondacks, upper Adirondacks, near more near Canada, um, near Lake Placid area. And where my house was, if you went out on the front porch, I could see Whiteface Mountain from pretty far away. And you could see Whiteface Mountain as you drove around the Adirondacks because it was very tall. It was a mountain. And he said a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So put lights on top of a mountain and then have it, have it cast lights from very far away. Many people can see that. In the black of the night, if there was lights all over the top of a mountain, people would be able to see that from far away. And he said the disciples of Christ are to be lifted up above the normal ambitions and the ways of the world and to be like a city set on a hill, giving off the light of truth and of the gospel to the darkened world that is around them. That's the disciple. That's pretty sobering also. So we're salt and we're light. We're like a city set on a hill. Another illustration he brings out about light is found in verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So lamps that would have been in household during the times of Jesus would have had uh, oil in them, and they would light the lamps, and that was how they would have light at night. So fire burning oil inside of a lamp. So they would light the lamps with the fire and extinguish them in a bowl or a basket that was specifically used to extinguish these burning lamps. This is the picture Jesus is giving his hearers. And he says to them, he just reasons with them very simply, you do not light a lamp in order to put it out. I don't think any of us do that. Even now when we have electricity coursing in through our house, if we do something where we light a candle during a dinner time or we just like to set the mood. We don't light it so that we can immediately put it out. We light it for a purpose. We want light to be cast from it. We want to be able to see. Uh, If we took it into modern day understanding, we don't turn a light on in order to turn it off. That doesn't make any sense. We turn it on so we can see. So you light a lamp to see. And if you have a light for the purpose of lighting up a room, height is advantageous to you. You don't put a lamp under your bed. You don't turn the lamp on and then stick it under your bed. Nobody does that. Oftentimes we install lights, we put them up uh, in a high place. I I had to, before I moved down here into the uh, Wyoming Valley, we had got a house, but there was a lot of work that needed to be done. I had to install some lights in the living room area of our house. And I did not install the lights on the sides of the wall. I didn't put them along the baseboard. I had to measure it out, stick the light up on the ceiling, and try and put it dead center of the room so that the light was evenly cast from above. And it makes it harder for shadows to be cast so that we can see in the entire room. And before, there used to be a ceiling fan that hung down probably two feet from the ceiling, and you'd hit your forehead on it. And I thought, this is not very helpful. So I put those uh, low-profile LED lights up in the the ceiling in that room. And I will tell you now, when you flick the lights on, you have no trouble seeing. 
you can see in that room. Sometimes it almost feels like the room is uh, too bright. And I put a dimmer switch on one of them to bring it down. But the point being, when people even construct a house, they put lights up on the ceiling in the center of rooms because the purpose is they want to cast light down on the room and they want to fill the room with light so that you can see. That is the purpose of a light. And Jesus said to those people, you don't light a light, a lamp, to extinguish it. It's almost as if he's, he's trying to get them to think, why do you light a light? So if you light that, that light on purpose, he says, you put your lamp up on a lampstand. Uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. But uh, if you didn't say it here, I know that there was a, in another place, he says, you put your, your light up on a lampstand, you put it up high. And this is just what I was illustrating, talking about what we would do if we were installing lights in a house. He says in verse 16, in the same way, with that lamp that I was just talking to you about, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we are not to hide the light of truth and the salvation of God in us from the world around us. He's saying, like the city set on the hill, you are to be up where people can see you. That doesn't mean that we are prideful people and saying, everybody look at me. He's saying, don't be ashamed to be a Christian. Don't be ashamed to live out this Christian life. You are meant to be a spectacle to the world, Christian. If you're a disciple of Christ, you are meant to be a spectacle to the world. You are supposed to be vastly different than the world. You are supposed to bring out the light of the gospel through your life. And how cheap most of what we hear today about the gospel. It's like, I don't know, it, 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 it's bothersome to read the scriptures and then to look at a lot of what is propagated as the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you read inside the book of the Acts and then you look at what we say Christianity is in America, there is a vast difference between the two. But he's saying we are to be radically different than the world. We're not just trying to be strange for strange sake. We're to be radically righteous in a wicked world. And that light is supposed to shine out so that people stop and look at us and be like, people aren't usually like that. What's up with this guy? It makes them stop in their tracks. So God wants the world to look at his disciples and see how they are different and what they are and what they do. And that us living like that, it's meant to point people to him. We're a light that set it on a high place so that people can see because without it, they're groping in the darkness of sin and wickedness. So how best do people see the light of the gospel through you? We're told here by your good works, the deeds that you do, the things you do, the things you do for your family, the things you do for your neighbors, the things you do for your next door neighbor. Uh, the thing I said that, that, so what you do for your family, what you do for your neighbors, what you do for society that's around you, the things that you do, and also your behavior, your attitude, your mouth, what you talk. And it's not just what you do, but it's also what you don't do that is very telling. So Jesus said, we're supposed to be like the salt of the earth. We're to be preservers. We're to be preservers of righteousness. We're supposed to be uh, that thing that adds flavor into a dark world. And we're to be also the purifying agent to the culture around us that doesn't know God. But then we're also sp supposed to be a light, a city set on a hill, a lamp that we light on purpose to light the way for others. That's what a Christian is supposed to be.
So what's the next step now that you've heard this? How is your saltiness, if you call yourself a Christian or a disciple of Christ, how is your saltiness? Are you an influencer for righteousness in your family, in society, in school, amongst friends? Are you like Jesus? Do you have victory over sin? Does your life point people to God? Are you allowing the light of Christ to shine from you if you call yourself a Christian? Are you ashamed of the gospel and extinguish your light under a basket? Where are you in all of this? We're supposed to be the ones that stick out from the world. And these questions are searching on purpose for us to evaluate ourselves before God. So your next step is to call 570-362-7782 or email gods.resistance at gmail.com. Introduce yourself to me, set up a time that we can meet, and I want to coach and help you further to walk with God. Make sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You're going to find teaching, preaching to help you on your journey. You'll also be able to connect with others that are going through their journeys. And then tell your friends about this broadcast every Sunday at 9 a.m. here on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. And tell them about our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Join the resistance, God's resistance. A special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International Creative Commons license. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.